I'm Dr. Jeff Donovan. I'd like to welcome you to the Evidence-Based Hair Podcast. Well, a great big welcome to the Evidence-Based Hair Podcast, Season 4, Episode Number 8. I'd like to welcome you to the final episode of Season Number 4. The Evidence-Based Hair Podcast was created for the hair loss practitioner. It was created for all those who wish to dive into the fascinating and ever-changing world of hair loss. It was created for practitioners around the world who care for people with all different types of hair loss. Each week I'll review a handful of research studies that are changing how we think about hair loss. I'll introduce them to you, help you make sense of them, and I'll give you my thoughts on how these studies just might change how we diagnose or treat hair loss. These are studies in androgenetic hair loss, alopecia areata, telogen effluvium, trichotillomania, scarring alopecia. These are studies in every type of hair loss that exists. The Evidence-Based Hair Podcast was created by the Donovan Hair Academy. It was created to help all those who help all those with hair loss. It was created for educational purposes and shouldn't be considered a substitute for medical advice. And today it's my great pleasure to review with you five studies. For those of you who want a brief 5-10 to minute overview, a mini-podcast within our longer podcast, we will begin that in under 60 seconds. For those of you who want a bit more detail about all these studies, in order to figure out how to incorporate this new information into your own practice, well, you and I will look into these studies with some more depth together. Thanks so much for joining me on this incredible journey. The references for all these studies are in the show notes that accompany the episode. So we'll begin by a study by Yan Fei in the International Journal of Dermatology 2023. The authors here set out to evaluate the safety and efficacy of using isotretinoin for treating seborrheic dermatitis. Seborrheic dermatitis is a common condition, affects 5% of the world. Common treatments include antifungal shampoos, zinc pyrithione, selenium sulfide, ketoconazole, cyclopyrox, and sometimes oral antifungals as well. But what about the role of isotretinoin? Well, isotretinoin has been reported in some prior studies as being helpful. And here we have a study of 48 patients, 26 of whom received 20 milligrams of isotretinoin, and 22 who received 10 milligrams of isotretinoin. All patients had a decrease in symptoms, and 90% of patients felt they had a moderate or good degree of satisfaction with the use of isotretinoin. And so we'll take a look at this very nice study and prior studies looking at the role of isotretinoin in refractory seborrheic dermatitis. I think this is a really nice study, and I think it's important to be aware of because it expands the options for tough-to-treat seborrheic dermatitis. And then we'll take a look at a very nice study in the Annals of Hematology, the April edition, looking at the differences between three times a day iron supplementation versus three times a week. And the authors set out to examine whether three times a week is truly any bit inferior to three times a day. And we'll go into studies from the past, and we've talked about these in prior episodes of the Evidence-Based Hair podcast, 
there's some fascinating data that suggests that maybe every other day iron is just as good as daily iron and perhaps has far less side effects. And so here we're looking at three times per week iron compared to three times per day iron. What a challenging comparison. But we'll see in this very nice study that three times a week ironed did not seem to be all that inferior to three times a day, and in fact had fewer side effects. The increase in hemoglobin seemed to be fairly similar at 12 weeks. The proportion of patients who had ferritins above 40 seemed to be the same after 12 weeks. And so here we have another study to add to the list of prior studies suggesting that iron supplementation does not necessarily need to be every day to help our patients. Wouldn't that be great if you can save all that money and you can have much fewer side effects by consuming iron supplements three times a week instead of three times a day? Well, this study suggests that that's the reality. And so we'll look at this together and we'll look at prior studies. I think this is a really important subject. The hair loss practitioner needs to understand iron supplementation really well. We need to know how to prescribe it. We need to know how to counsel patients on iron supplements. It's not an easy treatment. Patients get constipation, some get diarrhea, uh, patients don't always feel well on iron. And so if there's anything we can do to make iron supplementation easier, well, let's do it. And this study suggests that you certainly can by introducing iron every other day or here three times a week. Then we'll go on to look at the use of memantine for trichotillomania. This was a study published by Grant in the February edition of the American Journal of Psychiatry. Memantine is FDA-approved for Alzheimer's disease, moderate to severe Alzheimer's disease, and it was approved in 2003. It's a glutamate receptor antagonist. So here, Grant sets up a study to compare 100 patients, 55 using memantine and 45 using placebo. Patients started with 10 milligrams of memantine and then increased to 20 milligrams. 60% of patients felt that they were improved with the use of memantine compared to 8% on placebo. So here we potentially have a new option to add to our list of therapies for trichotillomania. And we'll take a look at the treatments for trichotillomania and how memantine might fit in. I really like this study. Then we'll go on to look at fungal cultures, a study by Gold in the Journal of the American Academy of Dermatology in March. Gold has published some very nice studies, and we've looked at some recently, looking at dermatophyte infections in patients throughout the U.S. And here, Gold studied 20,000 fungal cultures from a database and found 69% of those were dermatophyte infections of tinea capitis. Of the dermatophyte infections, most were from trichophyton species, especially T. tonsorans. 10% were from microsporum and 0.2% were from epidermophyton. So a really nice study giving perspective in terms of what are the causes of tinea capitis in U.S. patients. T. tonsorans is the most common fungal species in U.S. patients in this database. 
And T. tonsorans is becoming a very prevalent species around the world. And it had traditionally been thought that T. tonsorans was a North American infection. Microsporum was a more common European infection. And that is true in some countries, but T. tonsorans is certainly becoming more common. And so we'll look at this very nice study together, giving us perspective on what are the most common causes of tinea capitis in the U.S. And then we'll conclude Season 4, Episode 8, with a wonderful study looking at fungal resistance. The organisms that cause tinea capitis, these dermatophytes, are becoming more resistant to antifungals. A nice study in the journal of the Pakistan Medical Association. The authors here set out to evaluate the epidemiology of tinea capitis and the resistance to fluconazole and terbinafine. They found here that tinea violaceum was the most common organism in this study from Karachi. But what was so fascinating here is that 19.7% of isolates were resistant to fluconazole and 11.5% of isolates in their study were resistant to terbinafine. And so we'll take a look at this study and we'll dive into the fascinating data from the last 10 years looking at the emergence of resistance to various oral antifungals. And we'll talk about this dramatic change and see the, the wonderful studies that were published in 2018 looking at some pretty remarkable resistance to antifungals emerging in India and subsequently occurring around the world. There are some who are worried about the emerging resistance to antifungal agents to treat dermatophyte infections. And we'll take a look at this and we'll take a look at why this is so, so important and why the need for an expanding array of antifungals is probably so important as we continue to battle these very common infections. And so we'll look at these five studies together. Thank you again for joining me for this episode. We'll begin by a nice study by Jan Fay in the International Journal of Dermatology, February 2023, titled Efficacy and Safety of Oral Isotretinoin in the Treatment of Moderate to Severe Seborrheic Dermatitis, a Retrospective Study. I don't think there's ever been a day that has gone by that I haven't seen seborrheic dermatitis. Seborrheic dermatitis is common. It affects 5% of the population, but in patients with scarring alopecia, it probably affects 50% of patients with scarring alopecia. And in other po patient populations, it's probably much higher than 5%. The exact pathogenesis of seborrheic dermatitis is not entirely clear. But if you're going to explain seborrheic dermatitis, you need to include the word malassezia in your sentence. And you need to include epidermal barrier dysfunction in your sentence and you need to include transepidermal water loss in your sentence, and you need to include massive release of cytokines in your sentence, and tie all those together. And so it does seem that malassezia play a role in seborrheic dermatitis. There's some process by which there's epidermal barrier dysfunction, possibly microbiome dysfunction, that increases transepidermal water loss, and subsequently sets up this inflammatory milieu that gives this inflammation. We don't have all the details of seborrheic dermatitis worked out. If we did, it wouldn't be so hard to treat sometimes. Now, many patients do absolutely great with dandruff shampoos, ketoconazole, selenium sulfide, zinc pyrithione, cyclopyrox, but not everybody does. 
And it's not a cure, it's a treatment. And so clearly we have a ways to go to treat seborrheic dermatitis more effectively, and we have a ways to go to battle refractory conditions. When seborrheic dermatitis doesn't respond to dandruff shampoos, we often go on to use oral antifungal agents like itraconazole, terbinafine, and others. So isotretinoin may be helpful as well in treating seborrheic dermatitis. Isotretinoin reduces sebaceous gland size by decreasing proliferation of basal sebocytes. It suppresses sebum production by up to 90%, and it prevents sebocyte differentiation. And you're well aware of the use of isotretinoin in acne. Isotretinoin has been studied in refractory seborrheic dermatitis. And so Yan Fei and colleagues from China set out to retrospectively review the use of isotretinoin in their patients with moderate to severe seborrheic dermatitis. And they, they included in their study all patients who were diagnosed with moderate to severe seborrheic dermatitis and were treated with isotretinoin from January 2019 to December 2020. They included 48 patients with moderate to severe seborrheic dermatitis in their study. 26 of those patients were treated with 20 milligrams of isotretinoin. 22 patients were treated with 10 milligrams per day of oral isotretinoin. And the duration of treatment ranged from 2 to 6 months, but the mean was 2.42 months. The symptoms of seborrheic dermatitis were reduced with both the 10 milligrams and 20 milligrams. Symptoms reduction seemed quite similar in both of those groups, with no difference between the 10 milligram and the 20 milligram. And 90% of patients were moderately or very well satisfied with these two treatments. And there was no difference in how patients were satisfied in these two protocols. The side effects of isotretinoin were indeed what you would expect. Chelitis occurred in 47 of 48 patients. Skin fragility in, occurred in a quite a large proportion of patients. Itching occurred in 5 of 48 patients. Nosebleeds in 4 of 48. Muscle aches, headaches, eye problems in a very small proportion. And 13 of 48 had abnormal serum lipids. So all in all, the authors concluded that low-dose isotretinoin can indeed be beneficial in moderate to severe seborrheic dermatitis. I really like this study. I think that it ties in very nicely with studies that have occurred in the past, looking at oral isotretinoin in treating seborrheic dermatitis. A 2003 study from the German literature by Geisler, titled Very Low-Dose Isotretinoin is Effective in Controlling Seborrhea, is a study that is important to know. Geisler set out to evaluate the benefits of low doses of isotretinoin in 11 patients over a six-month period. And what I liked about the Geisler study from 2003 is they used very low doses, 2.5 milligrams three times a week, 2.5 milligrams a day, and 5 milligrams per day. And sebum production was reduced up to 64%. Acne lesions were reduced up to 84%. And overall, there was quite good results achieved with patients on these very low doses. It was a small number of patients, and so it was not possible to differentiate between these three groups with any statistical rigor. 
But nevertheless, these very low doses seem to impact seborrheic dermatitis. And the authors pointed out that there was a tendency for better results with the higher doses, the 2.5 milligrams per day and the 5 milligram dosing. Rademacher published a very nice study in the Journal of Cutaneous Medicine and Surgery in 2017 titled Low-Dose Isotretinoin for Seborrheic Dermatitis. I really like this study. The author performed a retrospective review of 46 patients with seborrheic dermatitis that had been treated with isotretinoin. All patients failed conventional anti-malassezia and anti-inflammatory treatments. The mean age was 26, ranging from 12 to 62. The starting dose here was 20 milligrams of isotretinoin per day. In 33% of patients, a dose reduction was possible to either 10 milligrams per day or 10 to 20 milligrams three to five times per week. But in 29 patients, a dose increase was required and treatment was continued for a period of 33 weeks. And the response was considered either excellent or completely cleared in 89% of patients. 43% of patients were still on this treatment at the end of the study. Side effects were similar. Chelitis in 43% of patients. Nosebleeds, tiredness, eczema, muscle aches, mood changes. And adverse events were more common on the higher doses than the lower doses. So all in all, I, I really like these three studies. I think they're important for us to know about as we think about treatment options for refractory seborrheic dermatitis. As you see patients with seborrheic dermatitis, it's helpful to include the use of selenium sulfide, the use of zinc pyrithione, the use of cyclopyrox shampoos, the traditional anti-dandruff shampoos. When those don't work, sometimes we include oral itraconazole, oral terbinafine, and there's protocols for the use of antifungals in the treatment of seborrheic dermatitis, and a multitude of antifungals have been studied. When those don't work or they're not completely effective, sometimes we add corticosteroid shampoos like clobetazole shampoo once a week with our dandruff shampoos or with our pulsed itraconazole or other oral antifungals. But we have to remember that oral isotretinoin fits in there in the protocols for treating refractory seborrheic dermatitis and can work quite well. What I really like about the literature on isotretinoin in treating seborrheic dermatitis is the fact that some studies have suggested that very low doses can help some people. And so considering 5 milligrams three times a week or 10 milligrams twice a week can actually impact a lot of people very favorably. And when we think about isotretinoin, we are often thinking about the chelitis, the need for blood tests to monitor cholesterol and triglycerides and liver enzymes. It's a challenging treatment to use. Women of childbearing age need to be on birth control. But there are some patients with refractory seborrheic dermatitis who can be very much helped by the use of oral isotretinoin. And so please do keep that in your toolbox as you're thinking about options for patients that have stubborn seborrheic dermatitis. So we go on now to a study in the Annals of Hematology the April edition 
A very nice study looking at three times per week iron supplementation compared to three times per day. The title, A Randomized Controlled Trial of Thrice Weekly versus Thrice Daily Oral Ferrous Fumarate Treatment in Adult Patients with Iron Deficiency Anemia. And I think I'm about to use the word thrice. The most I've used the word thrice probably in my life. Thrice means three times. So it's a randomized trial trial comparing thrice weekly versus thrice daily in iron deficiency anemia. A fascinating study which tells us that three times per week iron supplementation does not seem inferior to three times per day. So it's one of these non-inferiority studies. We need to know about iron deficiency. Iron deficiency can contribute to hair loss. Iron deficiency is not uncommon in premenopausal women. When ferritin levels dip down to 15, 10, 8, hair shedding is quite likely. Now, some of us have cutoffs in our mind that are of no basis whatsoever that you need a ferritin of 70 or 60, but we can go into that another day. But there is no real evidence to support that for the vast majority of patients, 95%, 98% of patients, that we need to be aiming for anything more than anything less than 40. In other words, if your ferritin is 40 or more, for the vast majority of patients, you're, you're doing great. Now, there are some of us who really do believe that you need a ferritin of 70. There's no, there's absolutely no basis for that. And we've talked about that on prior episodes. The reality is there's lots of patients walking around with ferritins of 38, 36, 32, 27, who have no hair loss at all. And so it's not correct that to say that if you see a patient with hair shedding and you see a ferritin of 27, that you have identified the cause of their hair loss. No. When ferritins start dipping down 20, 15, 8, 5, 2. Now you're in a situation where absolutely these low ferritins are probably contributing to hair loss. If I see a patient with hair shedding and a ferritin of 29, I would bet pretty substantially that that ferritin has nothing to do with their hair loss. If I see a patient with a ferritin of 2 and has hair shedding, I would bet substantially that that ferritin has a lot to do with their hair loss. So in other words, as you go down below 40, you increase your chances that a ferritin value is contributing to hair loss. But most people with ferritins 30, 40, 50 have no clear iron storage issues and are unlikely to have iron as a contributor to their hair loss. So it's important to remember that, and we'll we'll dive into this again. We've talked about it on prior episodes, but I think you really have to be careful when you see patients with medium ferritin levels, 35, 38, and tell your patients you need a ferritin of 70 or you'll get hair loss and your hair won't grow well. There's no evidence for that. I leave that to your discretion on how to how to use that information, but please do dive into the iron literature. It's fascinating. So as hair specialists, we need to understand iron well. Iron deficiency is the most common cause of anemia in the world. In 2019, the WHO estimated that the global prevalence of anemia 
was around 30% in non-pregnant women. And iron deficiency anemia is thought to account for about half of all cases of anemia in women. So if you see patients who are low in iron, should you be recommending iron daily? Well, many of the current guidelines certainly do recommend that patients with iron deficiency anemia use iron supplements daily in attempt to bring their ferritin and their hemoglobin levels back to a normal range. So what are the downsides of using iron daily? Well, iron pills aren't necessarily easy to take. They cause constipation. For some people, they cause diarrhea. They can cause nausea, upset stomach, a metallic taste. And some patients just don't feel well on iron pills. And so if you can get away with using them once a day instead of twice a day, well, that's even better. If you can get away with using them every other day instead of daily, well, that's even better. And so side effects may be reduced and compliance or adherence may be increased if we can reduce the frequency of use. And a large number of studies are now emerging suggesting that, yes, every other day iron, or as we'll see in this study, thrice weekly iron, can indeed be just as good as daily or multiple times per day. If this doesn't make sense to you, then it's important to understand this protein hepcidin. When you take in iron pills, your body produces hepcidin, and hepcidin blocks further iron absorption in the GI tract. So the more iron you take in, your body says, enough, 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 don't absorb any more iron, to try to prevent iron overload. And so even though you think that taking iron every day or three times a day should be better, it's not necessarily better because the more iron you take, the more hepcidin your body makes to block you from doing this. And so many iron studies have looked at the production of hepcidin to block iron absorption. We reviewed a wonderful study in Lancet Hematology in 2017 on prior episodes of the Evidence-Based Hair Podcast. This was a study by Stoffel and colleagues. So the Stoffel study from 2017 showed us that taking iron every other day is probably just as effective, if not more effective, than taking it daily. And so in this study, women were randomized to two groups. And here we're talking Stoffel et al. 2017. One group was given 60 milligrams of iron as ferrous sulfate in the morning on consecutive days for 14 days. And the other group was given 60 milligrams of iron on alternate days for 28 days. So there were 40 women in the study. 21 received daily iron, 19 received iron every other day. And at the end of the study, the total amount of iron absorbed into the body was 131 milligrams when used daily, but it was 175 milligrams when used every other day. And serum hepcidin levels were greater when iron was used every day. And so that was a really nice study which showed that it may be a little slower to build up iron if you take it every other day, but you're probably going to get to the same endpoint. 
And in fact, you might even do better. And it's probably less side effects. A 2020 study by Meta looked at daily iron dosing compared to alternate day dosing in the treatment of iron deficiency anemia. The authors compared daily versus every other day iron supplementation in 40 patients, 20 in each group. And the authors showed here that alternate day iron tablets was more effective and better tolerated than daily supplementation in the treatment of iron deficiency anemia. And again, hepcidin levels increased more when using it daily. And finally, before we dive into our new study, let me remind you about Kanar and colleagues in the Annals of Hematology 2022. And Kanar and colleagues set out to compare the effectiveness of daily iron versus every other day iron in the treatment of iron deficiency anemia. And in this particular study, 40 patients were treated with iron sulfate, 160 milligrams every day, and 43 patients were treated with iron sulfate, 160 milligrams every other day. And what the authors were able to show is that hemoglobin levels increased by month two to similar levels in both groups, and ferritin levels increased to similar levels in both groups after two months, regardless of whether you were using everyday iron or every other day iron. And so there were no differences between these groups, suggesting that they're similarly effective. And so here we have a very nice study in Annals of Hematology, April 2023, again coming back to this concept that we may not need daily iron supplementation to treat our patients with iron deficiency anemia. The title of this article, A Randomized Controlled Trial of Thrice-Weekly versus Thrice-Daily Oral Ferrous Fumarate in Adult Patients with Iron Deficiency Anemia. So in this study, the authors from Thailand report results from an open-label randomized controlled study which was designed to compare whether 200 milligrams of ferrous fumarate thrice weekly was not inferior to thrice daily. So this is one of these non-inferiority studies. They're trying to show that thrice weekly, three times per week, is really not worse than thrice daily. And the authors also wanted to look at the incidence of adverse events. So who was included in this trial? Well, the authors recruited patients 18 years of age and over with iron deficiency anemia who had hemoglobin levels less than 12 grams per deciliter in females or 13 grams per deciliter in males. And in SI units, that's 120 and 130. And serum ferritin levels less than 30. The primary endpoint was an increase in hemoglobin by 3 grams per deciliter. Having a hemoglobin of 12 in females or 13 in males by the 12th week of treatment. And a number of secondary outcomes included the number of adverse events and various iron indices. So there were 64 patients. 32 were in the thrice weekly arm and 32 patients were in the thrice daily arm and the trial demonstrated non-inferiority of the three times weekly iron protocol compared to three times daily. I think that's pretty fascinating. 
Taking an iron pill three times a week is doable. Taking an iron pill three times a day is pretty hard. It's pretty hard to take it. It's pretty hard to remember. And it's pretty fascinating that this study suggests that thrice weekly was non-inferior. So the iron profile in the thrice daily arm occurred earlier than the thrice weekly. So the numbers budge upwards the direction we want quicker when we take it three times a day. But at week 12, we are leveling off and we're getting pretty similar results in both group. And that's what's so important in this study. At the beginning of the study, hemoglobin levels were around 8 in both groups. Ferritin levels were around 9 or 10 in both groups, and they were similar. The mean hemoglobin level in the thrice daily arm was higher at week 4. It rose to 9.9 .9 in the thrice weekly group, and it rose to 10.8 in the thrice daily arm. But the mean hemoglobin levels were not statistically different at week 12, rising to about 12 grams per deciliter in both groups. And the proportion of patients who had a serum ferritin above 30 was also not different in these two groups at week 12. The mean ferritin level was slightly higher in the thrice daily group, but the proportion of patients that achieved a ferritin above 30 was similar in both groups. And all symptoms resolved in both groups. Fatigue resolved, dyspnea resolved, shortness of breath, dizziness, sore tongue, all of these resolved. And there were more gastrointestinal adverse events, nausea and epigastric discomfort in the three times per day arm. So all in all, this study showed that three times per week, thrice weekly, iron supplementation was non-inferior to thrice daily in the treatment of iron deficiency anemia at week 12. It had fewer adverse events and lower costs. So I think this is really a great study. Iron supplements aren't easy to take. If you can have patients use it every other day, then that's fantastic. I think it really limits side effects, it limits costs, and it increases adherence to a protocol like this. And so I think this was a really great study and adds to the prior studies by Stoffel and Maida that we had reviewed in the past. So we move on now to a study of trichotillomania by Grant in the American Journal of Psychiatry titled Double Blind placebo-controlled study of memantine in trichotillomania and skin-picking disorder. Trichotillomania is an impulse control disorder. It's associated with repeated pulling of hair that leads to hair loss. And behavioral therapy, habit reversal training, is really the gold standard as the most effective treatment. Studies have suggested that olanzapine, clomipramine, N-acetylcysteine, may be beneficial in the treatment of trichotillomania, even though there are no formally FDA-approved treatments. SSRIs, by the way, don't seem to stack up very well to be all that effective. 
olanzapine, N-acetylcysteine, and clomipramine have some pretty good evidence, but habit reversal training is at the top of the list. Glutamate is likely involved in trichotillomania, the glutamate system. Glutamate is a major excitatory neurotransmitter in the nervous system, and motor habits and intrusive urges that drive the repeated pulling are thought to be driven by this glutamate system. And a number of models, including most models, support the relevance of this glutamate system. So a new study looks at the potential role of this drug memantine in the treatment of trichotillomania and skin picking disorder. What is memantine? Well, it's a drug that was FDA approved in 2003 for moderate to severe Alzheimer's disease. It's a glutamate receptor antagonist that targets excessive glutaminergic drive. The most common side effects of memantine are dizziness, constipation, confusion, headaches. Those occur in 5% or more of patients. And in 5% or less of patients, side effects like hypertension, visual hallucination, and somnolence are thought to occur. So in this study, Grant and colleagues set out to compare memantine against placebo in the treatment of hair pulling and skin picking behaviors. So there were 100 patients with trichotillomania or skin picking disorder that were enrolled in this trial. The doses of memantine were 10 milligrams to start and then increased to 20 milligrams. And it was an eight-week study. 100 patients, 86 patients were women. The mean age was 31 years. And again, patients received memantine 10 milligrams for two weeks and then went up to 20 milligrams for six weeks. And there were 45 patients in the placebo group and 55 patients in the memantine group. A variety of measures were assessed regarding skin, pull, um, skin picking and hair pulling, including various trichotillomania severity scales. And compared to placebo, memantine treatment was associated with a significant improvement in a variety of scales, including the Sheehan Disability Scale, the Clinical Global Impression Severity Scale. 60.5% of participants in the memantine group felt they were much or very much improved compared to 8.3% in the placebo group. And adverse events didn't differ significantly between the memantine and the placebo group. So all in all, this study found that memantine treatment resulted in a statistically significant reduction in hair pulling and skin picking compared to placebo. It had a relatively high efficacy. The number needed to treat was two. And so you need to treat two patients with memantine in order to have one that truly benefits from this drug. And that's really a very low number for the number needed to treat. In other words, that is really encouraging. That is really exciting that this could be a, a good treatment to consider. And it was well tolerated. There were no significant side effects. So overall, the glutamate system may be a useful target in compulsive behaviors like trichotillomania and skin picking disorders. Certainly longer trials will be needed. This was eight weeks. And higher doses are something that many investigators are interested to to use many people that are familiar with the use of memantine in a variety of neurology-related disorders, including Alzheimer's and others, 
do sometimes increase to 30 and 40 milligrams. And so further studies may look at whether higher doses above 20 milligrams may be useful and whether these can be combined with other treatments like habit reversal treatment and other pharmacologic agents that affect glutamate. So we move now to studies of tinea capitis. A study by Golden colleagues in the Journal of the American Academy of Dermatology, March 2023, titled Epidemiology of Tinea Capitis Causative Species, an Analysis of Fungal Culture Results from a Major U.S. National Commercial Laboratory. And so this is a study of fungal culture results from a major U.S. National Commercial Laboratory called LabCorp. So Gold and colleagues have performed a number of nice studies looking at tinea capitis. We reviewed a nice study by Gold and colleagues a few weeks ago on the Evidence-Based Hair podcast, teaching us that we don't really culture tinea capitis enough and we're not doing enough scrapings and we could improve in our way we evaluate tinea capitis. And so here we have a nice study again by Gold and colleagues. And the authors here set out to evaluate the causative fungal agents in tinea capitis in the U.S. and to determine exactly which group of patients are getting these infections and which group of doctors are actually ordering these tests. So the authors evaluated data from LabCorp, which is a U.S. commercial laboratory, from 2019 to 2022. They evaluated 20,000. 259 fungal culture results. Most patients were children. The median age was 8. 10% were under 2. The most common group was 3 to 12. 60% of patients fell in that group. 12% were 13 to 21 years, and 17.5 were over 21. 53.5% were male. Who's ordering these tests? Dermatologists in 43%, pediatricians in 35%, and the rest are other. So overall, 34.8% of results were positive for a fungus, so they came back positive. The remaining results were negative. But of these 7,000 positive results, 69% were dermatophytes, 11% were non-dermatophyte molds, 11% were yeasts, and 9% were unspecified fungus. Among dermatophytes in this U.S. study, 89% were trichophyton, mostly T. tonsorans, but there was some T. violaceum, T. rubrum, T. mentagrophytes, T. sudanensi. 11% were microsporum. Most of those were M. canis, but there was some M. gypsium and M. madunii and just 0.2% were epidermophyton. And remember, the dermatophyte infections are trichophyton, microsporum, and epidermophyton. And most of the dermatophyte infections here in this U.S. study were trichophyton. The study found a higher percentage of yeasts, like candida, and non-dermatophyte molds, like aspergillus and fusarium. And the authors point out that most of these organisms are likely hair or scalp colonization or contaminants, and it's unlikely that they require systemic treatment. 
So all in all, this data shows that T. tonsorin remains the most common dermatophyte infection, contributing to tinea capitis, and most patients are fitting in the age group 3 to 12. And that's what we know about the epidemiology of tinea capitis, that it tends to be a condition affecting pediatric group patients, especially 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11 year olds. Once an individual hits puberty, the sebum production leads to an unfavorable environment for fungi and dermatophytes to grow. And that's why we see a sharp drop-off after puberty in dermatophyte infections. And so finally, a study by Zisha and colleagues in the Journal of the Pakistan Medical Association from January 2023, titled, The Rising Menace of Antifungal Resistance in Dermatophytes Among the Patients of Tinea Capitis. A really nice study looking at resistance that is emerging to dermatophyte infections. I think this is such an important concept for us to be aware of. We will run into an increasing number of patients that are not responding to oral antifungal agents that we would have thought should have worked. And this concept of resistance is so important. And if you're listening in certain countries, such as India, it's even more relevant than in North America or parts of Europe. But it is becoming a very relevant issue, as we will see today. And some authors are quite concerned about the emerging resistance of dermatophyte infections to oral antifungal agents. So let's dive into this subject. So dermatophytes are these pathogenic fungi that love keratinized structures. And on account of that, they find their way into nails, skin, and hair. And they create these superficial infections called dermatophytosis. You know these. Tinea capitis is what we'll speak about today. But there's tinea corporis, tinea facii, tinea pedis, tinea cruris, tinea capitis. And it's estimated that around 10 to 15% of people are going to get these dermatophyte infections. They're extremely common. Athlete's foot, tinea pedis, extremely common. Tinea capitis is the fungal infection of the scalp by dermatophytes that we'll talk about today. What's so important to remember when you see patients with tinea capitis is you need to treat it with oral antifungals. Treating it with topical antifungals or antifungal shampoos is not the way to go. The oral agents that we use include griseofulvin, itraconazole, and terbinafine. Fluconazole is on there as well. So let's take a look at these and, and build some knowledge base as we go about looking at this study from the Journal of the Pakistan Medical Association from 2023. Let's begin with griseofulvin. Griseofulvin was FDA approved in 1959, still a common agent in many countries, including the US. Griseofulvin is not a common agent that you can get in Canada. It interferes with microtubule formation, impairing fungal cell growth and fungal cell division. But ever since griseofulvin was introduced, it has become clear that not everybody responds to this drug. And some patients have 
increasing resistance to griseofulvin, whereby they require higher and higher doses to kill the fungus. In addition to griseofulvin, we have the azole drugs. Fluconazole is one of those. The azole drugs inhibit alpha-demethylase. This is an enzyme in fungal cell membranes, and by blocking alpha-demethylase, the biosynthesis of ergosterol is inhibited. Ergosterol, or ergosterol, is an important component of making cell membranes of fungi. And when you block the ability to make ergosterol, fungi can't live. And so in addition to resistance to griseofulvin, there's been resistance to these azole drugs as well. And resistance to azole drugs may come about by several mechanisms. There can be a reduced uptake of the drug. There can be active transport of the drug out of the cell. The, the fungus takes up the azole and then spits it out. And the mechanism by which it spits it out is these ABC transporters. And by revving up this transporter and overexpressing genes for this transporter, it's able to boot out the azole drugs from the cell. A very novel mechanism to get the drug out of the cell ASAP. Another mechanism of drug resistance to azole is uh, degrading the drug within the cell. And finally, there can be resistance occurring from point mutations in genes that code for lanosterol 14-alpha-demethylase, which then in impairs the ability of drugs to bind to the enzyme. And so there's these four mechanisms by which you can get resistance to azoles. So tribinafine is a drug that inhibits squalene epoxidase, and by inhibiting squalene epoxidase, you prevent the formation of ergosterol again. And this just facilitates the accumulation of more and more squalene. And this weakens the cell wall of the fungus, and it ultimately cannot survive. But there is emerging resistance to terbinafine and the azoles, like fluconazole. And so we're going to walk through this very fascinating story. It's a really interesting story, and it's important to know about as we go about developing an understanding about why this new study in the Journal of the Pakistan Medical Association is so important. So in 2003, Mukherjee published a very nice study titled Clinical Trichophyte and Rubrum Strain Exhibiting Primary Resistance to Terbinafine. And this was one of the first cases of terbinafine-resistant T. rubrum recorded in North America back in 2003. So this paper showed that terbinafine-resistant isolates had normal susceptibilities to itraconazole, fluconazole, griseofulvin, but they were resistant to other squalene epoxidase inhibitor drugs, suggesting that there's something to do with squalene epoxidase inhibition. The Mukherjee paper didn't propose a mechanism, this 2003 paper, but simply set out to report that there is resistance to T. rubrum developing. Favre and colleagues the year later published a study 
trying to characterize exactly why resistance is occurring, and they proposed that there were alterations in the squalene epoxidase gene that contributed to this resistance. So we have this story brewing in 2003-2004, and the story took a new turn, a dramatic turn, in 2018, with news from India that there was terbinafine resistance developing, and data from India showed a large proportion of terbinafine resistance in isolates of trichophyton interdigitale. And so in that year, a number of authors, including Singh and colleagues, reported resistance at rates of 32% in strains of trichophyton interdigitale, and this was renamed trichophyton indotinae. And so Singh and colleagues' paper from 2018, published in Mycoses, was titled High Terbinafine Resistance in Trichophyton Interdigitale Isolates in Delhi, India, Harboring Mutations in the Squalene Epoxidase Gene. So Ebert, in 2020, published an additional study as a follow-up titled Alarming India-wide phenomenon of antifungal resistance in dermatophytes, a multicenter study. The word alarming is really important because it gives perspective to the fact that this is concerning, that these dermatophyte-resistant organisms is, is a concern. And so in 2020, Ebert and colleagues conducted an epidemiologic study across eight different locations in India. There were 402 patients in that study. Among these various isolates, 78% were identified as T. mentagraphytes, 5% T. interdigitale, and 5% T. rubrum. Terbinafine resistance was found in 71%. There was also increasing resistance to voriconazole and itraconazole. And the authors observed it that and the authors observed that azole resistance was more frequent in the terbinafine-susceptible strains than the resistant ones. But all in all, this study showed a concerning rate of terbinafine resistance in India. And this concern has only increased since then. And resistance continues to be a major issue in India, and it's, it's spread worldwide to be an issue. And we'll come back to this in a minute, but the authors proposed that the ability to have access to inexpensive corticosteroid antifungal products in India has played a real role that many patients can have easy access to cheap antifungals and corticosteroids to go ahead and treat these dermatophyte infections any way they want. So resistance is being seen in T. mentagraphytes, but also T. rubrum. And although resistance was first noted in India, it's now a worldwide phenomenon. And terbinafine-resistant T. rubrum has been documented in the U.S., Resistant T. mentagraphytes in India, Germany, Poland, Iran. There are many countries that are now reporting resistance to dermatophytes. And James Hay, in the article, The Spread of Resistant Tinea and the Ingredients of a Perfect Storm, published in Dermatology 2022, proposes that this is evolving into a global public health crisis to add to our list of global public health crises. So most cases of terbinafine resistance have been identified in tinea corporis, tinea cruris, tinea pedis, tinea facii. 
but there is emerging data for resistance in tinea capitis, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But overall, the current rate of terbinafine resistance may be as high as 30% in India. Of course, in some studies, up to 72% in certain isolates. But worldwide, resistance to trichophyton may be upwards of 20%. Why are we getting this resistance? Well, there's abundant use of over-the-counter antifungal creams, inappropriate use of steroids, which perpetuates the spread of fungus, inappropriate prescription of antifungal drugs, poor adherence to courses and courses that aren't finished, and then the global travel and migration that is occurring. And so if you have patients coming from areas of high dermatophyte resistance, then it spreads quite readily. These dermatophytes spread quite readily, as we all know. It's easy to get tinea capitis. It's easy to get athlete's foot. It's easy to get these dermatophyte infections. The true number of antimicrobial resistant dermatophyte infections is difficult to estimate because we don't do antifungal susceptibility testing. When you scrape the skin for tinea corporis or you scrape the scalp for tinea capitis and you send it off, you get back the organism, but you don't get susceptibility testing like you do with bacteria. So when you do a swab for a pustule and you send it off to a lab, you get back. This grew Staph aureus and it's sensitive to penicillin. It's sensitive to da-da-da-da-da. You don't get that susceptibility testing with the dermatophytes in most places. And so you don't get to see that, wow, I'm dealing with an organism here in my patient that's resistant to fluconazole. It's resistant to uh, terbinafine. So we don't get that perspective on changing evolution. And it's not mandatory to report antimicrobial resistant dermatophytes in the U.S. So we lose that ability to track that there's something alarming going on. What about tinea capitis? Well, reports about 10 years ago have highlighted the emerging resistance of tinea capitis. Iodelli and colleagues have done some very nice work highlighting resistance of T. rubrum species involved with tinea capitis. And their paper from 2020 titled Prevalence, Identification, and Antifungal Susceptibility of Dermatophytes Causing Tinea Capitis in a Locality of North Central Nigeria. In 2022, Abastabar published on tinea capitis in Iran. Tinea capitis was diagnosed in 75 children and 19 adults. The most prevalent age group was 5 to 9 years. And there was resistance observed to fluconazole and griseofulvin, and there was resistant T. mentagrophytes identified as well. So the exact proportion of terbinafine-resistant T. capitis or tinea capitis is really not known, but it may not be so insignificant. Ghanum suggested that 3.5% of strains of dermatophytes causing tinea capitis are resistant to fluconazole globally, and the numbers for terbinafine may be somewhere in the order of 10 to 20% globally. So we come back to this study by Zisha and colleagues, the rising menace of antifungal resistance in dermatophytes among the patients of tinea capitis. I really like this study. It's a great wake-up call to the possibility that 
drug resistance to our antifungal agents will be part of our daily practice in the years ahead. And it's happening quickly. And so these authors from Karachi, Pakistan, set out to determine the epidemiology of dermatophytes in patients with tinea capitis and their susceptibility to fluconazole and terbinafine. And the goal of the study was to highlight antifungal resistance. And so between August and December 2019, there were samples of the hair and skin taken from the scalp of patients and demographic information was collected and samples were sent for direct microscopy and mycologic culture. And susceptibility testing was done against fluconazole and terbinafine. There were 207 patients in this study. 55% were male. 51% were children. The non-inflammatory types of tinea capitis were present in about 50%, and cervical and occipital lymphadenopathy or lymph node enlargement in the neck area and back of the scalp were present in about 15% for the cervical chain and 5% for the occipital chain. 68% of those with tinea capitis had alopecia, scaling in 63%, itching in 52%, and painful pustules in 42%. So overall, 51% of these samples showed growth of some sort of fungal organism, and about 50% didn't grow anything. And among the growth-positive cases, 57.6% were dermatophytes, and 42% were non-dermatophytes. T. violaceum was the most common organism. We reviewed earlier from the gold study that in the U.S. T. tonsorans was the most common organism. Here in Karachi, it was T. violaceum in 34%, T. mentagrophytes in 29%, and T. tonsorans in 14.8%, followed by T. sudanensis, T. verrucosum, M. canis, T. rubrum, M. gypsium. The rate of resistance to fluconazole was 19.7%. And among dermatophytes, the highest resistance to fluconazole was noted in T. mentagrophytes with 38% resistance, T. violaceum in 19% resistance, and T. rubrum with 50%. Terbinafine resistance was noted in 11.5%, and the highest rate of resistance was in T. mentagrophytes in 22%, and T. violaceum in 14% of T. violaceum. So here in Karachi, T. violaceum was the most common organism, and uh, T. mentagrophytes was the second place. Resistance was a feature. 19.7% resistance to fluconazole, 11.5% to terbinafine. So I think this is a really important study, highlighting this concept of dermatophyte resistance. This is undoubtedly going to be part of our dialogue in the years to come. And I think that now is the time to start talking about it. The gold study from a few weeks ago, which I'll include in the show notes, taught us that, you know, most of us see these tinea capitis infections and we don't culture it. We don't send it off to the lab to see what it grows. And many of us don't even treat with oral antifungals. So we have a long way to go to get up to speed to diagnose properly these tinea infections. 
and treat them properly. But I think this data here reminds us that this is a pretty serious issue, that we need to culture these organisms. We need to figure out first what's growing. And in those tinea capitis or tinea corporis or tinea pedis that don't respond to treatment, that maybe just maybe we need to start thinking about resistance. And yes, if we have a trebinafine-resistant dermatophyte, we can consider an azole. But I think in, in some cases, we may want to start thinking about uh, susceptibility testing. And we, not, we may not be able to do that, but we may be able to, in some cases, get our ID colleagues on board and get interest in further investigation of resistance and minimal inhibitory concentrations of these drugs against these dermatophytes. This is a really important topic. It's going to be here before we know it, and we're going to be talking about this probably in the near future, even more here in North America. It's a scary issue, and it's a dramatic issue in parts of India, and it has become an important issue in Europe, where most practitioners in Europe now report that they are seeing resistant dermatophyte infections, and it's here in North America as well. And so I mentioned this study, it's a very nice study of tinea capitis, and so many prior studies have looked at tinea corporis and tinea pedis, tinea facii, and the possible resistant organism, but here we have tinea capitis. We don't do susceptibility testing in uh, dermatophyte infections, but we need to be thinking about the possibility of resistance, and I think we need to be treating dermatophytes seriously and at least culturing them. And we'll be hearing a lot more about this in the years to come. The global prevalence of resistance to dermatophytes has increased since 2018, and it's becoming even more of an issue. So I want to thank you for joining me for episode number eight, season number four of the Evidence-Based Hair Podcast. We've come to the end of season number four. Today, we reviewed isotretinoin for treating seborrheic dermatitis, a nice study by Jan Fay in the International Journal of Dermatology showing us that when your seborrheic dermatitis is not responding to dandruff shampoos, not responding to oral anti fungals not responding to clobetazole shampoo, well, lo and behold, you have isotretinoin on the list to consider. And patients in the 10 milligram and 20 milligram group both felt they did quite well. We talked about iron dosing for iron deficiency anemia, a study showing that thrice weekly was not inferior to thrice daily. And after 12 weeks, People using iron three times a week did just as well as patients using three times daily. A nice study of 64 patients, 32 in each group. We talked about a nice study of memantine, this Alzheimer's drug memantine, which is a glutamate, glutamate receptor antagonist for treating trichotillomania. Grant and colleagues showed us in a study of 100 patients that patients receiving memantine did much better then patients receiving placebo, 60% were improved compared to 8% on placebo. We talked about gold study in the JAD of 20,000 fungal cultures, showing that in the U.S., most tinea capitis is T. tonsorans, 
very small proportion, 10% M. canis and 0.2% epidermophyton. And then a study by Zisha and colleagues teaching us about fungal resistance and resistance to fluconazole and resistance to terbenafine in patients with tinea capitis. In Karachi, T. violaceum was the number one dermatophyte organism, but 19.7% were resistant to fluconazole and 11.5% of isolates were resistant to terbinafine. And we dove into this concept of an emerging public health crisis and why it's so important for us to take this seriously. And so that's it for this week. That's it for this season number four. I thank you so much for joining us. We've reviewed close to 100 studies in the last eight weeks, and I hope this was informative. We'll be back in July as we launch season five of the Evidence-Based Hair podcast. Thanks again so much for joining me. Be well, and we'll see you in July. Bye-bye.